I didn't put mine between my bicycle spokes Or leaving them at home unattended with my folks I vowed to save them till I got old Never tossed, never sold Flipping, trading, collecting, saving Waiting, hoping, dreaming, praying Top Fleer, Don Ross Bowman, big league on display I'm so glad my mom and dad didn't throw mine away Hello and welcome to episode 1522 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I'm Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Sam Miller of ESPN. Hello, Sam. Hey, Ben. Baseball is not happening right now, but baseball books are. This is prime time for baseball books coming out, and we are about to speak to the author of one of them. It is out today, April 1st. It is called The Wax Pack, On the Open Road in Search of Baseball's Afterlife. I read an advanced copy. I blurbed it genuinely. I like the book a lot. And its author is Brad Baluchian, who joins us now. Hello, Brad. Hey, guys. And Ben, you taught me the word. Is it Bildungsroman? Is that how you say it? <laughs> wow. Can you read? Let's read Ben's. Can, can, does someone have Ben's blurb in front of him? Because I'd like to hear this Bildungsroman saturated blurb. This is what my publisher took from what Ben... I don't know if this is the whole thing, Ben, but this is what they put on the back cover. Yeah, I think it is. Baluchian's cross-country cardboard-based Bildungsroman (laughs) reminds us that baseball's best stories are sometimes told by and about players who've long since left the league. Yeah. There you go. If I had blurbed it, I would have squeezed in picaresque. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> a picaresque romp right exactly yeah <laughs> yeah so the book is published by university of nebraska press and later in the episode i will be talking to the acquiring editor who picked up the book rob taylor because university of nebraska press is just a hotbed of baseball publishing publishes a lot of great books and published yours and sort of plucked it off the heap of baseball books out there People are trying to get them published and can't always. And you had a bit of an odyssey to get this thing in print, which sort of surprises me in that it's a very good book and it deserved to be published, but also sort of doesn't in that there are so many people trying to publish baseball books. And a lot of publishers don't think baseball books are all that appealing. So this story, just to summarize it for everyone, essentially you were kind of at a critical juncture in your life. You were trying to decide where to go and what to do. So in the meantime, you you opened up a pack of baseball cards, or in the interest of full disclosure, multiple packs of baseball cards, and you decided to track down all the players you drew and see them in person and find out what they were doing and what they'd been up to since they had retired. This was an old pack of baseball cards, so all these players were long retired. Some stars, some marginal players that you probably haven't heard of, and then you crisscrossed the country to track them down, and it was all about that odyssey and what these players taught you about their lives. So I want to ask you about your own odyssey to getting to this point. Obviously, this is not an ideal time to have a book come out when bookstores are closed, but you've been pulling out all the stops to promote it, and you've got a lot of big-name blurbers on board. Not even me. I'm surprised you found space for me on this back cover because you've got some other big names on here. But it seems like there's a lot of interest in the book, justified interest. So... How and why did it take a while to get this published, and how did it finally get into print? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. It was um, so the trip is I took I took the trip in 2015, and obviously it's 2020. So 
you might wonder, yeah, why is there this long gap there? And so when I took the trip, um, I didn't have an advance. I didn't have a contract for a book. I had the idea. I knew what I wanted to do with the story. And so I, I go on the trip. I have, you know, I drive 11,000 miles in seven weeks. I come back, got, you know, piles of notes and interviews to transcribe. And I spent the next, almost probably the next year, a little bit less, basically crafting the proposal to, to go out to publishers. And we went out in a very limited way to a few publishers, you know, going to the big five in New York and tested the waters. And they, they kind of universally liked the idea, but they were like, nah, it's still not, it's, it's not really hitting the right notes and here's some feedback. And at that point, the book, I do think it, it, it was, I was sort of struggling to, to find some of the overarching meaning of the book. So I went back and did a massive rewrite and then came back again many months later and my agent at the time said, um, you know, I, don't, I really don't think this is where it should be. Like you basically he was pushing me to take myself out of the book and he thought it needed to be more of a straight baseball book. And I just disagreed. I always felt like, you know, the same way you guys were, were active characters in your book, The Only Rule, I felt like in order for this book to work the way I wanted it to, which was to be more than a baseball book, to be this narrative that I think could be go beyond baseball that it needed some kind of connective tissue, some kind of overarching narrative. And I thought that my character was was the per, you know, was the way to do that. And so I got a lot of pushback, not just from him, but from people in the publishing industry that were saying, you know, well, we really like in a nonfiction when the, the author takes a back seat, they should just be these, you know, they shouldn't be in the story. I was told, you know, you don't have uh, a platform. No one knows who you are. You don't have, I mean, who cares about you? Why should we, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, every, you know, just, just a lot of, I mean, and then when we actually went out more broadly, Later on, I got a different agent and went out more broadly, and I got uh, a couple of editors that were really great. I mean, champions of the of the book, but as I'm sure, as you guys know, you kind of have to get universal buy in from the editorial board to get green lit on on a book deal. And I was basically told um, it's great writing, it's a great idea, but you know we've run all the numbers and we don't think we can sell enough copies in the first number of weeks to justify whatever. So it was. Uh, very demoralizing after, you know, the rejections piled up. and But I never, like, I started to think maybe I'm crazy. Maybe this really isn't that good. Like, because I, I kept believing in the book that I knew I could do. And so I just, at a point was like, do I just shelve it? But I decided, no, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to go to a smaller publisher. And that's when I reached out to University of Nebraska and Rob Taylor. And he immediately was like, this is great. Let's, let's do it. So you know, I actually wrote most of the book in about five months. So it was like once I actually could, I knew I could do it, I, I was able to sit down and crank it out. So 1986 tops, right? How did you pick the card set? And I guess if you can whet people's appetites, it's not really a spoiler to say who's in the book, right? Because it's all about the journey and the question of whether you're going to track these guys down and whether you will actually get an audience with them. So if you can name the names of the players that you picked and how you came up with this idea, that might be illuminating. Yeah, sure. So as I talk about in the book, I'm definitely an outlier, a weirdo, different, you know, strange guy in the sense that I always, I never followed the crowd. Like my favorite things as a kid were never the things that other people liked. And so my favorite baseball players were Marty Barrett and Spike Owen and Don Carmen, Don Carmen being my favorite. 
And so, and I, I would, you know, actively collect, I don't know if you guys remember, but I would act, you know, back in your collecting days, I'd actively collect the common cards that no one wanted. And so when I saw the, the pack, the wax pack, I thought, well, this is a great device for a book because you get the randomness of, and the thrill of like, whoever's in there, that's who you're going to write about. And I just knew that just by probability, most of the guys would be common guys. And that would give me a, a chance to write about those players. Like, no one would ever read a book about just Don Carmen, but if he's bundled with this bigger kind of high concept thing, then I could I could do that. So it was sort of like self indulgent in that in that way. Um, but in terms of who I got, it was uh, it was a good mix of the more journeyman guys: Rance Mullenix, Lee Mazzilli, Don Carmen, Randy Reddy, all the way up to sort of semi stars like a Vince Coleman or a Gary Templeton, and then. You had Doc Gooden and, and Carlton Fisk as probably the, the two most famous. Right. So I won't spoil what happens when you try to track these guys down, but there are some heartwarming stories. There are some sad and bittersweet ones. There are some guys who give you great advice and wisdom and welcome you into their homes and just say, why don't we have dinner? And other guys who kind of brush you off and make it difficult for you to contact them. And I guess if you could maybe give us your favorite wax packer, your favorite story from this journey, and just also whether you think there's any correlation really between the career that a player has and how interesting a, a person he is or how interesting an after the field portion of his life he has because some of the more marginal players in the book that you drew I think have maybe the most interesting stories or, or sometimes the most interesting things to say which I found to be true when doing interviews on the podcast too is that if you try to get a superstar on the show A it's harder to do that B they maybe speak in cliches because they constantly have people trying to get interviews with them. They've said everything. They've been asked everything. Whereas the more marginal guys aren't really used to people wanting to talk to them. And so all their material is fresh, right? Not really rehearsed. So I wonder whether you found that to be true. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, the guys that were much more interesting from sort of a literary perspective were the guys that were the more the, the underdog types and the journeymen and you know, they hadn't been asked, like you said, they hadn't been asked as much. Um, their egos, I don't think, didn't didn't get the better of them as much. So I found them much just more relatable. But I think what what really surprised me the most in a, you know, that really was kind of touching was how how open these guys were. Because as you you know, as you said, baseball players are, you know, famously trained to speak in cliches and not really let their guard down. But what I found was I was able to really get these guys to open up and be really vulnerable about some really personal things. One of the common themes is the strained relationships they have with their fathers. And, you know, Rick Sutcliffe talking about his father, who was a professional race car driver, basically walking out on the family when he was a kid and how that made him so angry and in some ways may have made him a, a better baseball player because he says, you know, guys like Drysdale and, and Koufax didn't intimidate him at all when he got to Dodger camp as a rookie because nothing could scare him after what his dad did to him. And he put up that hard exterior. Don Carmen, the guy I said who was my favorite player, I met him at, at a zoo in Naples, Florida. And again, it was surreal to, this is a guy that I, you know, I collected his cards. I had plaques made of him. I wrote him a birthday card when I was like nine or 10. And here I am now meeting him as an adult, and within an hour of meeting him, we are, you know, he's telling me about uh, in, in getting very emotional talking about 
how his, basically his father abused him and, and how much anger he had from, from that. So, you know, those stories really, I thought, were the highlight of the process in terms of getting to these guys to, to open up. Yeah. And if I'm right in my blurb, if this is kind of a coming of age story, did you come of age? Was there something about this experience that taught you something about yourself or about life? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, you know, I, I always wanted to be careful not to make this contrived or try to like shoehorn some epiphany and, you know, eat, pray, love style. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. I wasn't going to find the meaning of life in seven weeks on the road. Right. But, um, I think what I did, a couple of things that I realized were that one, that we all have a lot more in common with baseball players than we realize that it kind of demystified the, the hero thing for me a little bit where, you know, I remember what it was like to see these guys as a hero as a kid for being these, you know, larger than life figures. But then to me to see how much I could relate to them as an adult and like the same things that that I struggle with, we all struggle with are things that they're going through or they've gone through. It it, it was a it was a nice, you know, thing to, to to take away from the book, to feel in a way closer to these players on a human level, not so much in the context of, of baseball. So uh, we've brought you here to play a game about your book, kind of about your book. And so two of the themes of this book, I think, that that really came through to me while I was reading it is one that these players have very long lives after their career, you know, their quote unquote career is over, like they have entire careers after. And uh, some of those careers are coaching third base for the Astros, but some of them are being a realtor or being a teacher or, you know, doing other things in the game, trying to find their way. And, you know, they're alive for a really long time and they're still interesting humans. And, uh, you know, like a big part of what made your book so charming is that you went out and you asked them about what they'd been doing once, you know, they were no longer on camera. Another theme of of your book, I think, I read this at the same time I, I read Lords of the Realm. And one of the weird things about Lords of the Realm is that there's all these players that are in it, you know, players, characters from like the late 60s and early 70s during the labor wars, who now they are managers or broadcasters or politicians. And you're like reading about them as players. And you're like, oh, yeah, I mean, he was clearly destined to be a a broadcaster. He was really funny even then, or he was destined to be a politician. He was, you know, really active in the union, or he was a leader. He was destined to be a manager. And then he became a manager. And your book has a little bit of that, too. A lot of that, too, where where they are at, what what are these guys now, 50, late 50s, a lot of them? where they are in their late 50s, it sort of really does kind of seem consistent with where they were as players in their early 20s or in their 30s to the extent that we knew them. And so um, we're going to play a game called Let's Pre-Member Some Guys. And we're going to imagine if you wrote this book in 25 years and you opened up a pack of cards and you looked each of these players up and, you know, you, you found that one of them was, you know, say a manager, who, which active player would we guess that that, that that person would be? Like, basically, we're saying of active players, who do we think might be a manager? We are going to be very bad at this. We have no way of knowing this. You know, in fact, I would say a third theme of your book is that you don't really know these players when they're under the spotlight to really get to know them. You kind of have to take them to a diner 30 years later and talk to them when their guard is down and when they're matured and when they've had some time to learn a little bit about themselves. So 
We don't really know, but I think there are clues, or maybe we're going to find out if there are clues. And so we're going to see if, if we can have some guesses for who these people are going to be in the future. All right? All right. It sounds fun, but, you know, just disclaimer, you know, you got oh, yeah. <laughs> we have no idea. You have no idea. You're going to be terrible. I will probably, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be terrible. Ben is going to be, Ben specifically oh, told me worst. he's going to be terrible at it. That's <laughs> totally fine. By the way, speaking of this, Victor Martinez, I read today, has a horse in the Kentucky Derby this year, assuming there's a Kentucky Derby. Ken Rosenthal reported this. And so if we had had horse owner, a professional horse owner, what do they call them? What do they call a prize horse? I don't know. Uh, Then Victor Martinez a couple years ago would have been the guest. So that's how that's the game, right? Who's going to own a horse in the Kentucky Derby? (laughs) Not one of the categories, but here we go. All right. I would have said Johnny Cueto for that one. He's big oh, on the, the horses on his, his Instagram. Yeah, but they don't. <laughs> his dead, horses though. are not pictures of health. <laughs> no. Okay. Good point. All right. First one, inspired by Rance Mullenix, who was the first person you visited. Who will be a local realtor or else another Chamber of Commerce style local business owner? So like I'm thinking... Uh, like Andre Dawson, for instance, owns a a, mor- a a funeral home. That's a chamber of commerce type of business, I would say. A uh, realtor, chamber, like a booster for the community. Uh, if you're a, uh, I would say a state lawyer is a chamber of commerce type business owner. Car salesman, would that count if you own a dealership? Yeah, only if you're active. Like CJ yeah. Wilson owns dealerships, but I don't. Yeah. You have I to mean, be on the lot. <laughs> you have to be, you got to sell, you got to close. If you're not closing deals, to me, it doesn't it doesn't count. Now, yeah. if you own a used car lot, I, I would say own a garage would count. Car dealership, I think, is a little much. All right, so we're talking we're talking hyper local small business owner. All right. Okay. Uh, and uh, this one's a tough one. And it does, okay, so eh, Brad, do you have a, do you have a pick? I do. I do. Yes. Who is it? I would go with Eric Sogard. Eric Sogard, that's a good pick. Oh, yeah, he's a CPA, right? <laughs> yeah, I just I, I see him just I can see him at the at the holiday party, you know, just kind of by the punch bowl. I don't know, just yeah, he, he kind of has that small town charm feel to him. That's a good one. All right, Ben, do you have a guess? Yeah, I'm gonna go with Dan Vogelbach. I oh, I like him as a realtor because a he's a first baseman. He's always chatting people up. That's sort of part of the job. Oh yeah, that would the mayor prepare yeah. you well sure. for that occupation and he's uh, very much a people person he kind of crosses barriers in the clubhouse like apparently he's like best friends with Yusei Kikuchi like Yusei Kikuchi named his son after Daniel Daniel Vogelbach even though there's obviously a language barrier there and reading from uh, Corey Brock's article about Vogelbach at The Athletic like all the other players kids play with Vogelbach when they're at the park like he's just the guy everyone gets along with and he is not a star which I think helps I know he was literally an all-star this past year but you know not one with the highest expectations and Brad as you pointed out when I emailed you this list of occupations it is less likely now that a player would end up being a realtor or some small business owner than it was in the era of the players that you were trying to seek out here because players are making such major money right now if they're in the majors for any significant amount of time that they don't actually have to do this so it has to be someone who would want to do it who just wants the socializing and the glad handing and so I'm going with Daniel Vogelbach. 
That's, I'm glad you mentioned that, Ben, because I also thought that it would have to be somebody who wanted to do it. And I struggled with this. I'm, I'll tell you, my pick is Lance McCullers, um, who is way too good for for a realtor work, unless you think he really wants to be a realtor. And so I was, I w- with all of these, I had a hard time. You know, the, with this book, it's interesting because in a sense, this is the first group, the first generation of players that got really rich playing baseball. And they got rich enough that like Carlton Fisk never has to come down from his castle and see you. But also they're a generation before they're getting as rich, you know, super, super rich, right? Like you mentioned Don Carmen as an underdog and Don Carmen made $1.9 million. His t- the most active pitcher on Don Carmen's comps at Baseball Reference is Travis Wood, who retired a couple years ago, and he made $22 million. And I don't, you know, besides that, there's the fact that players today are, you know, they're publicly known before they even get drafted. They're scout, they're rated by the public as prospects throughout their minor league career. They have much more of, uh, to some degree, of a national profile because of how much of their uh, existence is uh, supported by fantasy baseball players. The fact that all games are nationally broadcast on MLB TV, so they aren't just local stars. And so I wondered whether the player, whether the experiences that you had with your players would be replicable in 25 years at all, whether there are any commons in Major League Baseball today. So I struggled with that. But that is all to say that, uh, you know, I, if you think about lottery winners, I think that probably of people who win the lotto, like 70% retire and, and just are professional hobbyists for the rest of their life. And maybe 15 or 20%, you know, devote themselves to some creative endeavor or, or philanthropical endeavor that they really care a lot about. And now they finally have the financial resources to do it. But then I think 10% don't even quit their job. They just keep going in and like stocking the vending machines because they're like, you know, they like they like work. They like whatever. They, they There's something about that personality that I can't personally relate to, <laughs> that most of us, I think, probably can't personally relate to. But they just like being out there in public with a role to play. And to me, Lance McCullers is the first name I thought of. He seems like a person who genuinely likes being around people and would not want to give that up. By the way, one last thing about this. We're assuming that nobody who makes $20 million will want to be a realtor and work, you know, for, I don't know what realtors make. What do realtors make? Successful ones maybe make $130,000 and median ones maybe make $60,000, I'm guessing. We're assuming they wouldn't want to do that. But almost every baseball player, including many super rich ones, take jobs as coaches where they get paid about the same, right? And they work until they retire. So most True. players even today do not actually retire and go lounge about in, um, you know, repose for the rest of their lives. They actually do get up every day and put on a literal uniform and go to work. <laughs> that keeps them close to the game, which it does. Right. Not. Yeah, no, it's true. I wasn't sure whether that gives evidence to my theory that there will still be realtors like Rance Mullenix or not. But anyway, <laughs> Lance McCullers. All right. I was prepared to talk for that one. The rest I'm just making up. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Small town mayor. Small town mayor. Well, um, this is uh, pretty uninformed. It's just, just based on his look, I just I put down Mike Moustakis. Oh, okay. All right. I'm taking Yadier Molina, which uh, maybe he's setting his sights too low. If it's a small town mayor, he could be mayor of St. Louis if he wanted to. 
he could rise to some higher political office probably, but I think I could very easily see him retiring to Puerto Rico and just, you know, the the Molina name is so legendary that if you just put his name on the ballot, he'd probably be elected without having to campaign or do anything, and he might like it. We have seen some players become local politicians after they retire from baseball, like, well, Raul Mondesi comes to mind, although he also comes to mind for corruption and getting indicted and I think possibly being imprisoned or at least sentenced to a prison sentence. So I, I don't think that Molina would go that way. But I just think he has the status and could easily do it if he wanted to. Like I, I thought about Mike Trout as mayor of Millville, for instance. I could imagine that, but I just don't know if he would want to even be in that very small spotlight. He might just want to go to his local diner without having to worry about politics. But Yadier Molina, I could see it just as sort of a, a status thing in his hometown. Yeah, I thought about uh, Madison Bumgarner just because, A, he is the the person most associated with a small town in all of baseball right now. And True. B, and B, you know, he is the person most associated with a second job uh, at this point in all of baseball. <laughs> yeah. So it seemed plausible that he would go back and be the king of king of Madison Bumgarnerville. Um, <laughs> and uh, but I ended up going with Stephen Vogt who is from Visalia, I believe, which is up near you, Brad. Bay Area, and, yeah. And it's definitely a, a small, smallish town. Uh, and he is extremely personable, extremely social, beloved in every clubhouse he's ever stepped in, um, and beloved really for years after. He just leaves a residue of, of loveliness in clubhouses. Uh, and so he seemed to me to best embody what Sean Casey did when they used to call him the mayor. And I think I vaguely recall Vote being uh, talkative from behind the plate when he was catching, but I, that's only vaguely that I, I think I remember that. I remember some catcher from that generation of a couple years ago uh, having that reputation. All right. Uh, all right. What about a national politician, a big shot? Yeah, I got uh, Sean Doolittle for that. Me too. I, I thought about Sean Doolittle <laughs> for every category on here. I thought, is this where I'm putting Sean Doolittle? Yeah, this is where I put Sean Doolittle. <laughs> I thought about like I, Chris Bryant or, or something. He came to mind, uh, but Doolittle's just been so outspoken compared to the typical baseball player that I could see it. I also could. I just wasn't sure whether national office would be what he would see as his most, uh, as the best way yeah. for him to affect the world. You know, like I could see him doing a lot of powerful things and, you know, voting on. Uh, on judges or whatever. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know if that was how he would choose to channel his energy. Yeah. I, but it is a good pick. I went with Brent Suter. I have no idea if Brent <laughs> Suter is interested in politics or, or I do know he's interested in changing the world because he did a um, video on MLB uh, with MLB oh, um, that's right. yeah. about climate change. Yeah. And uh, he went to Harvard. So he grew up in, he was born in Chicago, and then he, he grew up in, in Ohio, and then he went to Harvard, and then he went, and of course, now he plays in Wisconsin. And I feel like there's a, there's a boom right now in presidential candidates who grew up in sort of the middle of the country, went to Harvard, but then after Harvard returned to the middle of the country. So, you know, you've got your M Mayor Pete and you've got your, your Tom Cotton and your Josh Howley. And uh, there's just something about that, like going to Harvard, but then going back that seems to like, like 
like the media loves that and they consider you a uh, an instantly credible politician if you do that journey and Brent Suter did do that journey he's also he's very funny i believe he's even funny in real life not just for a baseball player but i think he's real funny uh, based on the the team movie parodies that the Brewers did, which I always found him to be the star, the, the true charismatic star of, and which, if I'm not mistaken, he might have actually had a creative role in, in producing. Sorry. I'm going with Brent Suter. Is being truly funny an asset to a national politician? <laughs> I don't uh, know. Uh, it's debatable. It is debatable. Al Franken was, I, I think, a uh, yeah. Minnesota to Harvard to Minnesota guy bill clinton was a was a what was a little rock to harvard to to little rock guy Mm -hmm. Uh, so uh leaving harvard and going back to the midwest uh seems like a anyway (laughs) he just got drafted it's not like (laughs) it's not like he went back to be the mayor of anyway let's see here national broadcaster i've got jamie moyer Oh, interesting. I've never heard his voice. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> he's not still playing, is he? Oh, he's not even active. You, you got me. <laughs> I guess I actually have to cross mine off because I had said CC Sabathia and he's not active. So never mm-hmm. mind. Yeah. I feel like uh, that. I was stumped. So I just said, when in doubt, guess Jamie Moyer. Yeah. Yeah. I, I considered Trevor Bauer because he certainly seems eager to be in front of the camera and he has been on MLB Network. But I went with Chris Archer. Because he has done the job. He was in some broadcast booths and he did a very good job. Everyone seemed to really like him and he seemed to more or less be enjoying himself. So I don't know whether that's still something he'd be interested in long term, but if it is, I could see that happening. And his career as a pitcher has sort of stagnated in a way. So maybe that will make him more interested in wanting to pursue that. I had Sabathia, but uh, my backup is Justin Verlander. National, I don't know what percentage of national broadcasters are stars, but it feels like it's a very high percentage, particularly if you're talking about people who have a career as a national broadcaster over the course of a couple decades. So I really limited it to the stars, and Verlander seems to uh, have a lot to say and is uh, you know, broadly un, uh, inoffensive while also being uh, fairly funny. And so he seemed reasonable. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, stat savvy uh, these days, which is probably sure. going to be a prerequisite for the next generation. All right. What about a beloved local team-specific broadcaster? All right. Well, I had, uh, having watched many games here in the Coliseum, although he's no longer there, I have Josh Reddick as kind of a, Ooh. like a, like a, a Dallas Braden type, you know, Interesting. You to see him on those local sports casts doing some kind of pranks or antics or silly little gimmicks and stuff. I, oh, I would love it. Cause he's, he is very dry and very serious, but you never know whether the seriousness is real or an act. And I could see enjoying years of not quite knowing whether he was intimidating me or doing a bit. Well, and if you're as big a wrestling fan as he is, you got to have yeah. some, you know, character in there. That's a great one. I went with Ryan Zimmerman, who's just Mr. National. He is so closely associated with that franchise, the first draft pick of the franchise, and the walk-off when Nationals Park opened. And I think he is the second longest tenured player with one team after Yadier Molina now. So he's been there forever. I don't have that great a sense of his personality, frankly, and I don't know how interested he would be in the job. 
but I would think that the Nationals would want to keep him around in some sort of ambassador role, and so if he has any interest in broadcasting, I would think the job would be his. Mine is very different. I have Yolmer Sanchez, who is... So I was trying to think of who today reminds me of of Mike Kruko as a player, as being quite outgoing and also inventive. Did you did you guys know that Mike Kruko invented the rookie dress up? Hmm. No. Which I think got I mean I think uh that got kind of it, it it's it got out of his control and became something that I think has had to have a lot of reins put on it because it became problematic. Uh, but he had I think we talked about this Ben one time years ago, like 6 years ago I heard I think Kuiper tell the story of uh, how he brought like I don't know, I think it was like shoes with goldfish in them and had the like like uh, platform shoes with goldfish in them or something like that or funny cowboy boots and had the rookies wear them. So he was uh you know, he was he was inventing things and Yomer Sanchez invented the self-douse walk-off celebration where he runs out and instead of douses the winning run, he douses himself, which is very funny to watch. Yomer Sanchez also, something that uh, happens way too much to ever be funny is players pretending to be reporters. So like, you know, there's eight reporters interviewing a player and then a teammate comes up and like pretends to ask a question or holds out a water bottle. And it is like classic, like not original, unfunny baseball player stuff. And Yomer Sanchez, by far the most committed I've ever seen a person be to that bit, and uh, and and had genuinely had people um, laughing out loud with his commitment to the bit. So Yomer Sanchez. Yeah, I couldn't decide how good to go with this pick. I mean, how good the player should be, because I think it's sort of skewed. I I grew up watching the Yankees and rooting for the Yankees, and the broadcasters at the time and even now were mostly really good players. I mean, there's the the odd John Flaherty in there, but you had a little bit before my time, Phil Rizzuto, and then Ken Singleton, and Bobby Mercer, and Jim Cott, and David Cohn, and Paul O'Neill. I mean, these are all really great players in most cases better than Ryan Zimmerman, if not necessarily as closely associated with the franchise. And even across town here with the Mets, I think of Ralph Kiner and Ron Darling and Keith Hernandez, all good to great players. So that may have kind of affected my perceptions here. Whereas if you grew up listening to Jerry Remy or Dwayne Kuyper or whatever, then maybe you kind of think of it as a, a former marginal player mm-hmm. who is beloved, but was not really a, an icon. Yeah, I definitely do think of it as a marginal player and i could see how it would be very different depending on what what team you're yeah. uh, you're talking about all right manager future manager this one gets this one it gets thrown about all the time for active players and so who is an a, for, a future manager now yeah i mean i i think this is changing a lot in the game but you know for a while so many catchers were managers so i had steven vote for this one. Oh, yeah there you go And I had Jeff Mathis, who (laughs) he gets mentioned from time to time as a future manager. And you just figure when you look at his stat lines that he must have managerial qualities in order to keep his job for this long. So, yeah, it's got to be Mathis for me. I thought about Mathis. I have found that Mathis has no personal charisma, though, to Mm. me, part of what makes him so interesting as a uh, pitch whisperer is that like I said, he does not seem like he does not have the Brad Osmus face, you know, like he's not talkative. He doesn't 
seem like he would be a leader. And uh, so it's hard for me to imagine him giving a speech, but it probably would have been hard to imagine Ned Yost giving a speech if you were a fan in the 80s. And Yost never had to. I went with Yadier Molina for this. Mm -hmm. Might be too good to be a manager, but... I just feel like you're looking for, obviously you're looking for, you know, a catcher is a good starting point and someone who's smart and has a reputation of being smart uh, is good. But also I felt like Molina just has way too much competitiveness in him to go, you know, to go quietly into the night (laughs) to to be a what? A local local mayor. mayor. (laughs) (laughs) It could be, yeah. So I just felt like he, like he's not going to be satisfied being a roving catching instructor. He's not going to be satisfied being a hitting coach. He's not going to be satisfied with anything in the world except being a cat, uh, being a manager, and getting ejected from seven games a year. Yeah, I can see it. All right, a scowling hermit like Carlton Fisk was in your book. Yeah, I, I feel like this is. Um... I feel like there were more scowling hermits back in that era. So. I do. Yes, me too. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> I had a hard time. I was looking at the list of like star players. I'm like, that that's a nice guy. Like, I mean, you guys tell me you 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 know these guys maybe personally more, but um, just from more just the baseball optics of it, I had Madison Bumgarner. But for all I know, he might be like the sweetest guy. I also had Bumgarner. I I thought about Zach Greinke, but I I didn't know if he was scowling. Really, I could certainly see him as a hermit but he doesn't seem ill-natured, really. And uh, Bumgarner seems like, I mean, I don't know that he is necessarily a, a bad guy or anything, but he is kind of a, a red ass. And I would think that if some anonymous person came up to him in 30 years and said, hey, I drew your baseball card, <laughs> can I talk to you? Because I'm writing a book about it. He would say, get off my ranch or whatever. So, <laughs> of, of course, we have to save this podcast somewhere where we can actually do this experiment in 25 years, right? Yes, of course. Oh, Everything yeah, we'll we ever predict yeah yeah <laughs> um but yeah i had that same thought because I, I don't know if, whether it's because players are so accessible now you know with social media and everything that we feel like we know them or they're just sort of forced to speak like you you can't really be a hermit anymore because there's just always a microphone in your face and you're kind of a, a public figure and fans expect to have access to you and maybe players are just used to that so they don't even try to be scowling hermits anymore because it's just not really viable so i don't know if it's that or whether there's just a good crop of stars right now who are really personable and and young and charismatic. I feel like the game's gotten so much younger in a way that like you don't have the washed up angry veterans as much, right? Right. Yeah. I had a hard time as well. And ultimately I chose Zach Granke. Again, I I like you, I'm not sure scowling will be the right adjective. On the other hand, he does scowl a bit. And <laughs> uh I think that when he throws his last pitch, he's just gonna walk straight into the cornfield and we're never gonna see him again. Yes, I agree with that. <laughs> Although he might be a scout or something, that's the other thing. It's like he he moonlights as a scout now and he seems interested in analytics and player evaluation and all that, so he may want to remain around the game in some capacity, and if he does, then he won't be completely inaccessible. All right. Uh, extremely rich by other means. So basically, who is going to make a fortune after the game? And these are, every once in a while, you stumble upon one of these stories of a player who has been retired for 35 years and you know invented a kind of algae that like eats uh, carbon dioxide and now is worth like $7 billion. I was reading, what's that book called? Mint Condition? Is that what it was called? The baseball card book? 
from a few years ago. And I didn't realize this, but one of this, uh, the Upper Deck, the card company was formed in a card shop named Upper Deck. It was named after the card shop. And basically just a couple local guys were talking about how they should make a card. And one of them was, uh, was like a printer and something like a printer. And he said, oh, well, I can make these way glossier and counterfeit cards were a big problem at the time. He said, well, and I could handle that. I could, you know, just do this hologram thing and you, you can't, uh, counterfeit a hologram. It just would be way too expensive for a counterfeit card. And so while they're planning this, some like low level major leaguer, I mean, not low level because he was in the majors, but like a total scrub with like 12 career plate appearances or uh, pitching appearances walks in and they're like, hey, do you want to be part of our baseball card company? And he joined and he was one of the first partners in Upper Deck and he ended up having a very short career and got like incredibly rich off of Upper Deck and uh, eventually sued the company as as often happens in books about baseball things. So who will be a entrepreneur or some sort of somehow extremely rich person for non-baseball thing? I have Trevor Bauer here. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I I think Bauer would like to think that he'll be this person. I don't know if he'll be this person. He does emulate Elon Musk, and maybe he would see that for himself. I went for Ross Stripling, friend of the show, I suppose, in that he's been on it. He is a stockbroker, and he invests uh, pretty heavily and intelligently, seemingly, and comes from a a family of investors. I, I think we may have talked to him a little bit about that. And so I figure... For all I know, he has already had a, a lucrative career. Hopefully he was shorting everything recently or else he, his entire wealth may have just been wiped out. But I believe in his ability to accrue non-baseball income. Dwayne Buse is the pitcher and he made $200,000 as a baseball player and $17 million with Upper Deck. Oh, wow. Uh, I, will, I did not have a good answer for this. I couldn't think of a good one. I couldn't even really think of a vision for what would happen. But I picked Yasiel Puig because I could just imagine him, like, I could imagine him owning, like, um, I, I don't know. I could just imagine him doing something on, I think maybe I was too hung up on Ashton Kutcher uh, becoming like a social media mogul. And I thought I could imagine somebody making a lot of money using social media in a way that I don't understand. Uh, and, and Yasiel Puig seemed like uh, a person who I have seen on social media getting uh, lots of likes. Yeah, I could see Puig just like striking oil or something and becoming I could an too. oil baron. <laughs> like there's nothing I would put past Yasiel Puig. And I feel like he is a... Uh, he is an extremely talented person who is in his own way really in control of his image and he feels like he is too restrained by baseball but once he breaks the the shackles of baseball he is going to find his his fortune mhm all right did anyone actually sign him <laughs> not yet yeah okay all right and last one who will be a too active baseball dad so father of a of a of a young athlete who maybe has a little bit too much, you know, a little too, little too much. He's a little too much. I took this more, so this could be like the, the over-eager dad, but I took it more as like just the, the so nice and so loving dad that he's just always going above and beyond. I picked uh, Matt Boyd for this. Oh, um, okay. I believe he blurbed your book. 
He did. And so when I, <laughs> and I'm not just saying that because he blurbed it, but when I, in my interactions with him, the guy was just so sweet. And I was just thinking, wow, this guy, I could just see him being like at every game and recital forever. Why did he blurb your book? How did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> well, because he's um, one of Don Carmen's clients. Ah. And so Carmen is Scott Boris is one of his staff psychologists. And I said to Carmen, um, are there any current guys you work with that you think would like kind of appreciate this and, and some of the themes that I'm going with? And he's like, yeah, you know, Matt Boyd is someone who's super reflective and intellectual. And he'll really he'll really like this. So that's how that came about. I went with Todd Frazier, who just seems extremely dad-like. He is a dad, which is uh, one prerequisite for this position. I think he has multiple kids. And I read on Wikipedia that his name now graces the Little League field in his town called Frazier Fieldhouse, which that seems like maybe you'd put pressure on your kids to be players because uh, it's Frazier Field and you can't embarrass Frazier on his field. And he just he seems like, uh, I don't know, he's the kind of guy who seems like he would just be calling into like sports talk radio. <laughs> I don't know. He's just he's very New York and uh, I could see him being an over active baseball dad. I was trying to think of someone who is the progeny of an overactive baseball dad on the theory that, you know, like father, like son, and that maybe uh, a player would rebel against his dad who had been too active as a baseball dad, but then would find himself falling into the same habits and would look back and think, oh, no, I've just become like my dad, but be unable to escape that cycle of baseball dadness. But I couldn't really think of anyone because uh, Colby Rasmus is no longer in the league and no one else came immediately. To oh, so Colby Rasmus is such a good answer. I know, but not active. So Todd Frazier. Uh, I, I actually cheated. I went with non-active, although I don't know if he officially retired. I'm just going with Jose Bautista because Jose Bautista feels, I mean, he was just, he was so good at baseball after essentially like building himself up from, from the Mm. floor. And, uh, in the same way that like, you know, Ted Williams was, was supposed to be an impatient coach because, uh, he did it. So why couldn't everybody else? I feel like Jose Bautista would just look at maybe see projects everywhere he goes and be frustrated that uh, that other people uh, weren't as uh, successful at, at it as he was. So I yeah. don't know. Yeah, he's pretty active on Twitter too. He's, he's constantly following people. <laughs> it seems like it might translate. Yeah, and you know, I mean, you could just imagine, right? Like, okay, so your dad's Jose Bautista, and you're like a you're like maybe you're like a real hot shot high school pitcher. And uh, every time you pitch to him and he hits a home run, he just like flips that bat. Yep. <laughs> That'd right be intimidating. in your face. No? Yeah. <laughs> all right. All uh, right. We did it. That was all of them. Yeah. That's fine. <laughs> I wonder whether we'll get even one right between the three of us. <laughs> but yeah, we'll, we'll see. 25 years, put it on the calendar. Yeah. All right. Okay, well, the book is out. Everyone go get it. Again, it's called The Wax Pack on the Open Road in Search of Baseball's Afterlife. Usually I say available wherever books are sold, and I guess that's still true, but books are being sold at fewer places right now. However, you can still help out a local bookseller and go to IndieBound at least and order without actually stepping foot somewhere. And you can find Brad on Twitter at Brad Blukjan. You can find the book on Twitter at Wax Pack. 
pack book. Your book, by the way, has many more followers than you do personally, which I, I don't know if that's humbling or a, a, just a testament to the book and the concept for the book and the marketing that you've put into this thing that people are already jazzed about it without mostly having read it. And you can also go to waxpackbook.com to get more info about it. So thanks again, Brad, and congrats. And uh, I hope everyone enjoys it as much as I did. Thank you. And one last thing, uh, it's been really cool. Mm -hmm. You know, this obviously is a difficult time for everyone. um, But what's been really neat is to see several baseball writers have come together who have books coming out now to kind of help each other, interview each other on Zoom and co-promote. So we've got a a whole group that's that's, uh, come together called the Pandemic Baseball Book Club, which is uh, pbbclub.com. And you have a whole range of books and projects and uh, publishers represented with people that are that are um, coming out with books right now. So it's great to see people supporting each other. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll take a quick break and then I will be back with the person who helped make this book a reality, Rob Taylor of University of Nebraska Press, who will tell us about the economics of baseball books and how the press picks baseball books and how you can perhaps get a baseball book published yourself. So today we had Brad on to talk about the Wax Pack, which, as we mentioned, was published by the University of Nebraska Press on episode 1459. We had Paul Dixon on to talk about his book about sign stealing, The Hidden Language of Baseball. That was also published in its updated edition by the University of Nebraska Press. And on episode 1372, we had Joe Bonomo on to talk about his book about Roger Angel, No Place I Would Rather Be. That was also published by UNP. And in the past several years, so many of the baseball books I've read or have wanted to read have borne the stamp of the University of Nebraska Press. And today I wanted to find out how that came to be the case and a little bit about the economics of baseball books in general. So I'm joined now by someone who would know, Rob Taylor, the Senior Acquisitions Editor at the University of Nebraska Press. Hey, Rob. Hey, Ben. Thanks so much for that. Thanks for having me on and for having so many authors on to talk about their books. It really, really helps them find readers and appreciate that very much. Well, you make it easy because you have so many baseball authors and they write so many great books that it's hard not to have some of them on. And I guess, can we just go through what appealed to you about the Wax Pack as kind of a a case study in what draws your eye or what makes a, a book make sense for UNP to publish? Sure. Well, you know, with that book, I think what immediately hit me when Brad reached out and queried me and sent me a proposal was that it was a, a kind of baseball book that I hadn't seen before conceptually. And, that you know, that always helps if you're thinking about what's going to make a new baseball book succeed. Has it been done before? You know, what's its potential to find an audience? And I, I just hadn't seen anything like that. And I thought he had a real vision for just making it clear it was going to be, you know, just kind of one-of-a-kind baseball book with, I think, a lot of natural appeal because he was undertaking this road trip to go find these players, some of whom he had, you know, attachments to when he was younger, and he was going to try to seek them out and talk to them about, you know, a little bit about baseball, but a lot about 
their life since. So I think that was probably really the main appeal with that book. And the and the book, for people who have picked it up and maybe started reading it, I think it really lives up to that appeal. Yeah. So you've been with UNP since, what, 2003? And I guess by then it was already sort of a hotbed of baseball book publishing to an extent, but UNP goes back to the early 40s, right, and was not always that way. So how did that come to be the case? Sure. Yeah. So the press opened in uh, 1941, so almost 80 years ago now. And, you know, for its first few decades, it was a pretty traditional university, humanities-based university press, and uh, still is to a large degree publishing Western history and indigenous studies and some related areas. But yes, about late 80s into the early 90s, we had an editor-in-chief who then became a director named Dan Ross. And Dan saw the appeal in publishing about sports. And I think he saw it as a way for the press to kind of build out and expand on the Bison Books list. And I probably should have mentioned that first because that was established in 1960, the Bison Books imprint, as a way to bring lower-priced books about Western history, Native American history, Western culture, that kind of thing. And they were able to get those books into some non-traditional outlets, not just bookstores. And that imprint became kind of the press's calling card. And into the 80s and into the 90s, the press issued, reissued a lot of previously published work under that imprint that, say, bigger publishers had let go. And Dan really saw sports as a way to add to the to the bison list. And that's when he was able to acquire books like the John McGraw biography, Roger Kahn's books that we reissued, The Celebrant by Eric Rolf Greenberg, Bang the Drum Slowly, and Mark Harris's other baseball novels. And so that was really the, the genesis of the baseball list, which then turned into more or less of a sports list. But that started in the mid, early to mid 90s. And then by about the end of the 90s, the, the press was starting to do its own front list sports books that had, you know, books that had never been published. You're a nonprofit, right? And reading from your website, you've published more than 6,000 books. Can you give people some sense of the scale of the press compared to maybe some of the big name publishers that they're aware of or how the financials of a university press differ from, say, a, a big New York publisher? Yeah. So, uh, you know, among the university presses, I mean, you can't really compare the revenues to a commercial publisher because they are publishing so much true scholarly work that's appealing and targeted mainly at scholars first or you know people in graduate school and getting PhDs and you know it's very targeted peer reviewed scholarly work and you know that's a that's a model that has always not really been built on the bottom line you know it's not a it's not the kind of publishing that say people think of in terms of the New York publishing world it's a it's a completely different model and it's one that you know especially in an age where you know library sales have been declining is a bit tenuous and that's why a lot of university presses have had to adjust especially in the last 15 to 20 years and publish more general interest books and books that can reach uh, a wider readership because that's a model that economically helps them stay on 
you know, more solid footing as much as they can. And you always hear that baseball is the sport that inspires the most great writing. And I don't know whether that's just uh, baseball writers patting themselves on the back or whether that's actually true. It seems true. Certainly there's a, a long tradition of literary fiction and nonfiction about baseball. But I read a 2012 New York Times article about UNP in which you were quoted and the Hall of Fame librarian said at the time he estimated that about 300 to 400 baseball books were published a year. I don't know whether that's still mm -hmm. accurate, but if that's the case, how do you think that compares to other sports and what accounts for the fact that there are so many baseball books, uh, particularly at this time of year? You know, if, looking back at that article uh, and Jim's quote, you know, if anything, that could that number could be bigger now because of the um, wider availability of self-publishing options, you know, which has really only kind of grown since then. And so that, that number is probably still about right. It could be higher if you could track down every single self-published book. So, well, and I would say too, there's an old quote. I heard this years ago for the first time. I don't know who said it, but it was something along the lines of uh, the smaller the ball, the more literary the writing about the sport or something like that. <laughs> and, and um, you know, maybe to a degree that that could be true. You know, I think the output of baseball publishing far su surpasses any other sport. And, you know, part of that is traced back to, well, it's just been played professionally you know, longer than any other sport. And so that's probably part of it. You know, other than that, I just, I don't know, in terms of the continued output, it probably is going to still rival or surpass the other sports. And I, I think that just maybe more people who still love it and follow it want to write about it than other sports. I, I don't know if there's really a good explanation other than you know, I mean, that's kind of a surface level explanation, but I, I, I think it's still largely true. Yeah, I mean, people talk about baseball's older audience, and maybe mm -hmm. that has something to do with it. Maybe older people who tend to love baseball tend to be the ones writing books, especially historical books or reading books or having the time to read books. So I guess that could have something to do with it. But I have had the experience myself of sending book proposals around. And, you know, in my second book, we were pitching some bigger New York publishers. And a lot of them said, oh, you know, we like the idea, but baseball books don't sell anymore. We heard that pretty consistently. And I know that other baseball mm -hmm. authors have heard that. And fortunately, we found at least a couple editors who disagreed. And the book sold fairly well for a, a baseball book. But what creates that perception if there are so many baseball books that are sold every year? What do they actually not sell? And if so, why do they keep getting published? Or why do people think that they don't sell if they do? Yeah, well, I think your experience working with commercial presses shows that for the right projects, and and if you find the right editor, they'll still jump on mm -hmm. projects. But I, I do think in terms of the New York commercial side of the business, there has been a drop-off, I think, not just in baseball books, but sports publishing in general. And I don't have anything to go on to back that up other than anecdotally, but you know, I think if you look at the bookshelves, if you go into a, or when you're able to go into a store or look online, if you're seeing newer sports books from the bigger publishers, 
they're going to be, you know, bigger, maybe celebrity driven or authored books. They're going to be books that those publishers know unquestionably. They're going to be able to move thousands of copies, hundreds of thousands of copies. And if not, they're, you know, increasingly just probably going to pass on sports. And I don't know why that is either, but that leaves the mid-list publishers and the smaller publishers to have the opportunity to to be in this category. And, you know, that's where it benefits the smaller independent publishers and the university presses. Yeah. And there are certain books that I've read of yours that I've thought, boy, this is so well tailored to my interests and my interests specifically that I wonder how many people out there there are who would be interested in this book. I'm glad it exists, but I don't know if it Mm -hmm. would have a, a huge audience. So to what extent does the potential sales of a, a book factor into your decision? I mean, you are a nonprofit, but you do have to mm-hmm. remain viable and continue to yes. operate. So there has to be some sales potential, I imagine. But how do you evaluate that? And do you kind of do like a one for us, one for them kind of thing where you take one that you think will sell and that will maybe help fund a few others that you really like but aren't sure will sell? Yeah, well, when you're looking at a a book and when I'm looking at a proposal, and this goes back to what I said earlier about Brad's book, The Wax Pack, you're looking for something original that you haven't seen before. You're looking at the writing, of course, and you want it to to be as good as it can possibly be. And then you also want to see, well, what's what's the author putting forth about some of the efforts that they've made either with previous books or if they're a first-time author, what what can they say about, well, here's how I think I can reach my audience. Here are my connections that I think can help the book and really showing a vision for how they can try to help promote on their own. I mean, that's really key to work with a publisher at our scale, you know, whether it's the university presses or the more like the mid-list publishers who don't have uh, these giant marketing budgets and have to be a little bit more nimble and more targeted with how they're going to try to reach their readers. And, you know, fortunately we've published so many baseball books, you know, we're able to identify our readerships for these the different kinds of books and, and how to find them. And we have reliable outlets we can go to, to try to get them publicized or, you know, run an excerpt. And there are probably fewer of those outlets now than there were five, ten years ago. But you know what we find with most of the these books, the, the baseball books that we take on, you know, we feel pretty good about our ability to to sell them at a level that works for us and makes them successful. And that's you know for us that's probably a, a level much much different than what a traditional commercial publisher is looking at in terms of the bottom line. Right. Can you give any specifics about what a typical print run would be or or what sort of sales you would be looking for to sort of break even on a baseball book? Well, it uh, you know it, so much depends on the input, you know, the length of the book and you know what it's going to cost to typeset it and then print it. So it's kind of hard to quantify that, but what I'll say, you know, just about print runs in general, and again, this is sort of qualified by the notion that, you know, nowadays you don't have to print a giant number of books on your first printing because of the print-on-demand 
capabilities that are available and even the bigger publishers utilize these now mm-hmm. so that they don't have to have so many books on the warehouse floor but you know for us a first printing is probably anywhere from 1500 to 3000 and you know maybe sometimes even a little higher but that's probably about the range for a lot of them and again that's just sort of that's the first printing and you can always go back for more And roughly how many proposals for baseball books do you receive in a year and what percentage are you able to give a green light to? Oh, gosh. (laughs) You know, I probably get, well, just in terms of baseball, I mean, certainly dozens and into hundreds. I haven't actually thought about that for a while, (laughs) but I certainly see hundreds. Yeah. And um, only a small portion can I really say yes to. I mean, I can say, I say yes to about you know fifteen, fifteen to twenty per year mm-hmm. at the most. And I've also wondered why so many of the baseball books tend to congregate at this time of year. I, I know it has to do with mm-hmm. Father's Day and with what would typically be opening day. But is there a, an opportunity to space things out a little bit? If everyone is publishing their books within a, a two-month window, then doesn't that create more competition? Does it still work out in the long run that you wouldn't want to zig where everyone's zagging and say, well, they're all publishing their baseball books in March to May, so we'll publish ours. Uh, you know, we'll space them out a little bit so that we'll we'll have some scarcity on our side. Or is it just that this is the time of year when people typically want to buy baseball books? Well, you're right. And we have tried to deal with that both ways, maybe publishing some May and sometimes into June. But by then, you know, you're halfway into the season. So we usually try to get them out March, April, May, just with the hope that they're getting the full run of the season and the most publicity opportunities, marketing opportunities, and just giving it that longer run. But you're right, that does put you up against every other publisher bringing out baseball books for the spring. And I think it is just kind of a a little bit of a herd mentality with that. But you're Mm -hmm. probably better off, I think, just getting them out and early in the season when people are have been waiting a few months and they're ready for the season and they're they want to engage with it again and read about it and i i just feel like that's probably the way to go for now and you know if you had maybe a big biography or autobiography by a player and nothing about that player had been published you could maybe put it later in the season and it probably would allow it to stand out and get past that, you know, first wave. But I think either way, I think it works either way. And another thing that struck me and Travis Sacek when we were working on the MVP machine is that this is a book about how players and teams are trying to optimize performance and project performance. And it didn't seem to us like the same level of data was brought to bear in book sales, you know, that that people were Mm -hmm. necessarily moneyballing book sales. And I know I've read things here and there about maybe some publishers that are trying to predict and project things using data. But I wonder whether there's any place for that in the publishing world or whether it really just goes by feel because when we were working on that book and we were talking to the publisher about titles or what the cover looks like, that sort of thing, you know, they would say, well, we think this will sell and our sales team thinks this will sell. But it was never really based on anything, at least, 
you know, that we could tell they didn't say, well, we think this will sell because we did a focus group or we polled the potential audience and they said they like this title better or we know that historically, you know, titles with this number of words sell better or something. I don't know whether it's possible to do that, but does it just go entirely by gut feel when you're evaluating a, a proposal? You just you say, well, we think this will work. There's no way to sort of, I don't know, base it on past performance of books. Not that you would want to, I guess, go entirely data-centric or you'd end up publishing the same things over and over that have succeeded before. But still, it's something I wonder about because you're making these decisions. And it seems like a lot of the time publishers are just kind of going based on what the group internally thinks will sell without necessarily a lot of numbers behind it at least that were shared with us right well and you can as a publisher what you what you're relying on when you've published other books in the category is yeah to a large degree you're relying on books that you've published in that category and how successful they've been or maybe they haven't been successful you know and and that that model that kind of modeling is is really just the starting point and you can and this is not available to authors unless they want to subscribe to it. And I'm, I'm not even sure if you can sign up as an author, but you know, you can get numbers through publishers can subscribe to a book scan and they can get data that informs about sales figures up to a point. And that can help when they're looking at a book that they think is targeted to a similar readership. But, you know, I, I, I think it is true. A lot of it is sort of gut instinct and you're looking at all those inputs in terms of how's this, where's this going to fit in the category? Who's the author? What's their platform as an author? How are they going to be able to help publicize and sell the book? And that's probably how it's functioned for decades, more than, you know, than it being sort of a analytics based kind of evaluation. Yeah. It's too bad it can't be, but. And are there certain books in the catalog, certain baseball books that are sort of consistent sellers from year to year? They're just kind of the the perennials, the evergreen ones that you can count on for a certain level of interest year after year? Well, yeah. You know, in terms of the backlist of what we've published, you know, there's still a readership that still buys books like The Celebrant and Satchel Pages, Maybe I'll Pitch Forever those kinds of things that those books have been in print forever and ever and still keep selling. And in terms of looking at it more contemporary, I think biographies of players from the somewhat obscure to the well-known are always reliable because so, so many baseball fans and followers want to read about the lives of players and the eras that they, they played in and, I think the biography is still always has potential to sell books about teams in certain eras. If they're able to bring out kind of a time and place and a cultural element, those books have kinds of books have enduring appeal, you know, and I I think there's always going to be an opportunity to, to keep publishing new work along those lines. Yeah, I've joked with other baseball authors about the fact that it seems like there will eventually be a baseball book about every team that has ever played (laughs) because every spring I see books coming out and it's not necessarily like dynasties or World Series winners. It's uh, teams that you haven't thought of for years. 
but someone remembers fondly or thinks is representative of something that was happening in society at the time and has a a tie-in to the baseball story. And so there are so many of those that you think that team, that team has a book now, but people find book length things to say about them and and people want to read. And there've been a lot of those, obviously from the forties into the fifties, sixties and seventies, fewer on the eighties and into the nineties. But I, I suspect those are coming because we're, we're, we're far enough removed and, and, and those books are going to be, you know, publishers are going to respond to those books. I know I would if Mm -hmm. I got the right one. And how has the fact that people are not currently walking into bookstores and buying books affecting you personally and and the publishing industry in general? I mean, obviously, a lot of sales have migrated online in recent years, but with this pandemic, with some of the uncertainty in the economy and with the temporary closures of bookstores, I imagine that's not the ideal environment in which to launch new books. So how are you trying to compensate for that? And have you seen any effect that you can measure thus far? Yeah, well, just speaking personally, this time of year is really meaningful to me on a couple of levels. I mean, just like anybody else who follows baseball, I await opening day and it's such a special time of the year. And it's the time of the year when I know all these new books are coming and I have high hopes for them. And um, also just as an aside for the last couple of years, I've played baseball in in an adult wood bat league. And so that really has kicked up my, it really kicked up my love for the game after not playing for so many years. And so that's off for the foreseeable future too. And so that's just been sort of a a personal part of how the absence of it has made it, you know, that much harder to deal with. But, you know, with the books, I think the, there's still, if anything, while baseball is out, and of course we hope it comes back much sooner than later, but books I think are one of the few ways right now that people can stay interested and stay engaged and without the games being played on TV. And so I think for, for a lot of books, this this could be a good thing. It could help sell them, and it's and it's being helped by you know your podcast and a, a lot of other podcasts that focus on baseball or books, like Justin McGuire's Baseball by the Book and some others. Because I think that's really that's what people are left with right now who who miss baseball. And I think there are a lot of new books are, are going to help baseball fans while they wait for it to come back. And are there any particular books that you've acquired or helped acquire during your tenure at UNP that you're particularly proud of, whether they were big hits financially or whether they were just something you thought was really important and were able to give it a home that it couldn't find elsewhere? Sure. Well, if I go back to the very beginning, one of the first books that I acquired was a biography of Tris Speaker by an author named Timothy Gay. And so that book was, that book is special to me because it was really the first original uh, new book that I acquired at the press. And there have been so many along the way that I've been grateful to have the opportunity to acquire and work on. But if I could just name a couple, I mean, one book that was a a really big deal for us was Felipe Alou's autobiography, co-authored with Peter Karasotis from a couple of years ago, because that for us was a real move up in terms of the um, visibility of the 
of the author, and that's probably the biggest book that I've acquired so far. And a couple more that I'd like to mention that I've really been grateful for the opportunity to work on and some other books that are in the pipeline. More recently, we published Jeremy Beer's biography of uh, Oscar Charleston, mm-hmm. which we were lucky to win the 2019 Sabre Seymour Medal, which is awarded to Best Baseball Book of the Year. A few years back, published a book called Home Team by Rob Garrett, which is a uh, sort of a cultural history of uh, the San Francisco Giants from really the move from New York up to the building of the new ballpark and the sort of the turbulent history of that period. I'm also really excited about in just a few months here, we're going to be publishing uh, along with Sabre, a partnership with Sabre, Sabre's 50 at 50, which is a a collection of what Sabre has chosen as the most representative work by Sabre members uh, since Sabre's inception. And uh, we partnered with them on that, and we're really looking forward to bringing that book out in June and early July and building on that relationship that we have with Sabre, both in terms of working with them over the years as both their distributor, but also the, the relationship that we have with Saber readers who have been so good about buying and supporting our books over the last 20 plus years. And I guess lastly, because we have a lot of aspiring writers in our audience and people who will occasionally reach out to ask for advice about getting a baseball book published, what are some pieces of advice that you could dispense about how to come up with an idea that would intrigue you or other publishers and how to put together a proposal, what you're looking for essentially, or some of the mistakes maybe that some aspiring authors make? Well, I would say... In terms of what goes into a book proposal, there's we have guidelines on our website, and there's so many books and other resources that go over that. I won't spend too much time on that, but I, I think what it, I think it goes back to you know if you want if you're trying to write a baseball book, you really just should spend a lot of time on the idea itself and whether or not there are competing books. Is it really book length? Are you going to be able to have the material to put it together to make it book length? And because I see a lot of that, I see a lot of stuff that comes in and it's it's not even book length and, and some authors don't even know what that is. But, you know, I think that you have to have an idea that, that doesn't have competition. You have to have, you have to bring something to it in terms of, you know, your track record as a writer, you know, what can you show us about how you know, we know you're going to be able to to make this book happen and pull it off if you're given a contract, mm-hmm. and and really don't be in a hurry. That's the other thing I would I would always advise. You, I mean, everybody wants to be published next year or the year after. And a book is something that you're going to have to invest in for years, and in order for it to be the best that it can possibly be. And so that's what I would say too. Uh, but I think the the big two things are just the originality of the idea and how you know it's going to be able to find an audience who you think have supported similar related books in the category and what you can do as an author to help publicize it. Those are the main three things. 
And when most people submit a proposal, uh, have many of them written the book already or written a few chapters? Uh, Because I know when I did my books, we really hadn't written much at all. And it was all sort of hopeful and aspirational. And here's what we're going to do. And because of the nature of those books, we we couldn't really have written them or (laughs) any large chunk of them before we actually submitted. But if you're someone who's writing a biography of a long dead player, let's say, or a long ago team, you could in theory do some work on that before you actually get a contract if you're able to do that so do people typically submit long proposals with a lot of the book already completed and if so i guess how big a staff do you have that you're able to actually review all those things because i would imagine that there's a lot of reading to do when you're getting as many proposals for baseball books as you are well it's true that some people submit the barest of proposals and sometimes that's fine if they have a good enough idea and they can get right to it in the pitch letter and then they can say, well, here's my, my credentials. Here's who I am. You know, that sometimes is enough. But sometimes I do see not even a sample chapter because the author will say, well, I, I want to do this. You know, I hope this shows the vision for the book that I'm proposing, but I don't really want to start it until I have a contract. And that makes that makes total sense. And maybe that's kind of what you were feeling like when you were trying to sell that proposal. And that's fine too. And sometimes I'll get complete manuscripts with almost no proposal. And that's really what you don't want, actually, because because then you really do have to just sit with probably the first 40 to 50 pages. And sometimes that's not going to really tell you, well, where's this thing going? Mm-hmm. And that's why a proposal is really the best vehicle along with a sample chapter or two if you have it. And if you don't, even a short writing sample that just shows the style that you would plan to use for the book or something close to it, that's completely acceptable too. All right. Well, thank you for uh, doing that work and providing this service that you provide to the baseball community of getting some of these great books published that are definitely in line with my interests. And I think many of our listeners and maybe would never see the light of day if not for UNP. So we're all glad that you're out there and best of luck weathering this difficult time for book sales. Well, thanks, Ben. And thanks for um providing this outlet to um, not just our authors, but other baseball authors who continue to write about it and continue to tell baseball history while we uh, wait for it to come back. Yes. All right. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Ben. All right. I wanted to mention that if you're interested in purchasing any of the University of Nebraska books that I just talked about with Rob, or the Wax Pack for that matter, those books are currently 40% off. And that sale has been extended just for Effectively Wild listeners. So I will link to the page, but it's nebraskapress.unl.edu slash baseball hyphen sale. You enter the code 6BAB2 when you're checking out and you get the 40% discount. Again, check out the episode summary in the show page and the Facebook group for that link. I should also mention that the wax pack looks pretty good on a bookcase. Cover is styled as if it is a 1986 Topps card set, kind of creased and with a message about a bubblegum stick. Looks great. I'm envious of how great it looks. I want to thank everyone who has responded thus far to Meg's plea on our recent episode about supporting Fangraphs. Many of you have purchased Fangraphs subscriptions or signed up to support the podcast on Patreon, which you can do at patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already 
already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Sean O'Neill, Ryan Shores, Katie Kelly, William S. Pride, and Bern Samco. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Sam and Meg coming via email at podcastatfancrafts.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. Speaking of new books, I have a paperback coming out. It's the updated edition of the MVP machine, how baseball's new non Informers are using data to build better players comes out on April 7th in handy dandy paperback form with a new lengthy afterword that was not in the hardcover edition so check that out if you're looking for more reading material and we will be back with another episode a little later this week talk to you then and the